Hello and welcome to the Criterion Quest, a continuing podcast series looking at important films and contemporary classics. My name is Chris and I'm joined, as always, by my wonderful co-host Tom. Hello. And we are back with part two of our epic Cassavetes box set journey. It's fucking... It has been epic. It really has. It's, I was not prepared. Like, for this, for this episode alone, it's, like, what, seven, nearly eight hours worth of movies? <laughs> like, for three films alone, so... It's like doing Lord of the Rings, but over and over again, and actually, no shade on Lord of the Rings, but, like, interesting art house birth of cinema stuff. <laughs> yeah, Lord of the Rings is so much easier to watch. Yeah. But that's not to say that I'm putting... Cassavetes films down at all no no they're just a different ilk aren't they mm. um, but quickly before we get into the episode and going into the films um, just wanted to say uh, thank you to the people that have subscribed uh, so far to our Patreon that we launched last week so uh, yeah we really appreciate anyone that's had a look or signed up um, fucking legends yeah thank yes. you so much yeah you're, you're helping us kind of uh, pay for the cost of the website and to keep the podcast going and so we very much appreciate it and if anyone's interested uh, head over to patreon.com slash the criterion quest as I did last week I'll link it in this episode description um, our first commentary track for the castle is up and available and I'll be uh, putting up probably later today a uh, little bit of a sneak bonus thing for people Okay. Yeah, some some added added little content there for, for your for your five bucks a month. <laughs> All right. Well, let's get into it. Uh, first on the agenda is a woman under the influence from nineteen seventy four. Yes, indeed. Go for the synopsis. Yep. Uh, here we go. John Cassavetti's devastating drama details the emotional breakdown of a suburban housewife and her family's struggle to save her from herself. Starring Peter Falk and Jenna Rollins uh, in two of the most harrowing screen performances of the 1970s as a married couple deeply in love yet unable to express their love in terms the other can understand. The film is an uncompromising portrait of domestic turmoil. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yes. It is... I remember... Because I, this is one of the two Cassavetes films I'd seen before and... I remember getting a message from you earlier in the week, like, you'd obviously gotten about halfway, three quarters of the way through, and you'd just get a message saying, this is hectic as fuck. Yeah. <laughs> this is intense. Yeah, because, again, like, all the characters feel so real. Yes. And Gina Rollins does such an amazing job, and uh, usually I wasn't expecting, in the previous films we've watched, uh, Cassavetti's doesn't play with character progression and character characterization that much like he lets kind of the scenes just play out Mm. Um, but in this regard in this film I thought that Gina Rollins character uh, Mabel there's already I mean like five minutes in there's already a lot of character stuff going on and she's kind of micromanaging her mum while they're taking the kids out and she's just this anxious ball of of fucking crazy already yeah uh, and it's already kind of very intense to watch um, and that just kind of unravels even further as the film goes on and uh, I mean it, it was intense it was full on <laughs> it really really is um, yeah like doing the research and getting all the trivia prep for this I did uh, find an interview clip where um, Peter Falk was on the Mike Douglas show like talking about the movie and Richard Dreyfus was the guest okay. and he was um, like next to Peter Falk and he was saying like he had seen the film and he's someone who is bipolar and has a lot of issues there and Richard Dreyfus <laughs> said that it was the most like harrowing film ever and it made him like physically ill and he threw up from watching it he got so anxious <laughs> yeah you, you do get worked up I think mm. it is and what I found so interesting like it, with with these three in particular, it's where we started with Cassavetes with uh, Faces and Shadows. It's, it's such interesting explorations of what you can do form like with the form of cinema in terms of progression of um, scenes and narrative and kind of impact there and character development. Where, but as much as I love those films, they don't necessarily have a a refined kind of eye behind the camera if that makes sense whereas going into Woman Under the Influence it's now uh, god how many years like 10 years post um, Shadows or yeah post Shadows at this point and it's like 
oh shit, Cassavetti is, is amazing behind the camera now. Like, it looks... Yeah, that's right. It somehow has the exact same feel and tone and cinematic style as the previous films, but it's more refined. It's tighter. I think uh, this one and also Opening Night felt like a much more tighter experience. Yes. Uh, There's still the same themes going on, on, you know, for the most part. But, yeah, definitely technically speaking, uh, it was less rough around the edges. Yeah. It not... Yeah, it it really felt like a movie (laughs) to some degree. Like, not to diminish the others, but, yeah. No, but you can... (laughs) Yeah, but you can definitely say that looking at faces... It really feels like an independent film. That's it's rough. At the yeah. birth of independent film. Exactly. Whereas is. this actually is. And I think it's like everything with Woman Under the Influence is firing on all cylinders. Everything is top notch in the film that it is like difficult to look away and not get drawn in and captivated by everything that's happening on the screen. Even, sure. even though it is like similar, like it, if you were to describe the plot to someone, like. Not much happens in the film, but so much happens in the film. I mean, there's a few plot points. Um, I mean, there's the the intervention with the doctor, mm-hmm. and then her being sent away to the institution for six months. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And then there's the intervention. Well, the the kind of welcoming home party uh, scene, which is a very yeah, a plot point. Um, but but I mean, that's the the skeleton that you hang everything else on, I suppose. Yeah. Um, but let's get into. I was interested in. How did this film come about? Mm. Uh, and Cassavetes wrote this film uh, originally as a theatrical play. Yeah, apparently uh, Jenna Rollins had expressed an uh, interest in playing a um, sort of middle-aged woman who's like on the tether of you know her sanity. Uh, and so Cassavetes writes the script, mm. gives it to his wife, and she says, "I can't fucking, I can't do this play <laughs> night after night. This it's is too fucking crazy. Oh my god, could you imagine? It's too exhausting." Yeah, because it again, like, you know, one of the big points for both Shadows and Faces was, or more so I should say Faces, was the, sorry, Shadows, I keep getting the two of them mixed up, Um, the very theatrical play-like nature of its, the way its scenes are constructed, and this has a very similar kind of theatrical, like, not like fly-on-the-wall verite style, like we're just watching scenes happen for like 20 minutes at a stretch, and it's very theatrical. But, yeah, imagine seeing this as a play, like, how fucking raw and uncomfortable and intense it would be to be sitting there watching all of that. Mm, mm. And, yeah, it would drain the fuck out of your, like, the actress, so... That's the testament to the script. Mm. I mean, it's... He's doing something very right then, because that's his complete intention, is to get something so raw and, and, and real that even the actor is thinking, well, I don't know if I can do this night after night yeah this is so intense and just bearing I have to bear myself so openly that it's like that would just destroy me like having to do like a hundred performances of this so yeah she suggested let's do it as a film instead and so that's when you know got the ball rolling on that but it, it, it took quite a while like no studio would back the film like they said that no one uh, I think uh, Cassavetes was quoted as saying no one wants to see a crazy middle aged dame like on on screen so yeah um so well they think they're not going to make money out of it so he mortgages his house and peter falk um because he was uh, a couple of seasons into colombo at this point um kicked in half a million dollars from his colombo paycheck yeah based off the script alone he's he's that sure about it and 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 having faith in cassavetes and i think that's really the crux of it because it's not he's not looking at it as an investment he's thinking we've got to get this made because i want to see this finished this is important and it is like i i would argue that this is like i mean everyone knows peter falk from colombo or princess bride and things but this is whenever i think peter falk i just think like him maybe we'll get off the table (laughs) like you know it is this is the performance of his career yeah (laughs) Um, yeah he can really yell uh Holy crap, yeah. <laughs> That's right. Um, so it was 500000 from him. Cassavetes mortgages his own house to get another 750000 And uh, getting his... To cr- distribute the film as well. Yes. Oh, yeah, that, that is crazy interesting. But I, I also love um, the crew with the film as well. It was mostly students from uh, the American Film Institute because Cassavetes was the, uh, the first of their, like, directors in residence that would be there and help and teach and, you know, teach film to the students there. And so he was like, fuck it, you guys want to make a movie? <laughs> and, like, got the students at the AFI, like, to crew on his movie. 
give them first-hand experience and stuff. He has that pull because I think uh, and it comes across, especially in Open Night 2, it's the same situation hmm. where everybody is getting through on a f- fucking nothing budget yep. and they're just working for practically nothing just because they want to be around this person making these films. And they want to be part of that community that it's, it is... Like, it, I think I might have said it last week, but it's like the Little Rascals. Like, let's build a clubhouse and put on a show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Like, that's what it is. It's, 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 it's amazing. I mean, it's heartwarming because uh, in, in contrast, you get, you know, let's say, let's say animation studios where it's just people working very hard for something they don't give a fuck about. Yeah. And they wish they could be a part of something that they cared about. Yeah, like, theoretically, that's why they got into that industry is to... Yeah, to make a Disney <laughs> film or a Pixar film that means something. Yeah, to actually make something they're proud of and, and actually not like give a shit about. Troll tour or whatever. <laughs> hey man, they're going on a world tour. Trolls? So. Troll? I don't know. I'm not familiar with kids' 3D animation. Oh, you will be soon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're going to be inundated with that over the next couple of years. Yeah, when Nelly's growing up. No, I won't. Oh, I suppose I have to show her that shit. Yeah. But I'll have to leave the room. Yeah. <laughs> Just sit there, like, with headphones on. <laughs> Watching Cassavetes on your phone or something. <laughs> but anyway, the film uh, did, it did make money. It made twelve million. Yes. So um, that's, that's a, a resounding success, I think. Yeah, and partly because, like, uh, as Tom kind of alluded to before, there was no real distributor for it. So he ended up four-walling it himself, like touring it around, booking out theaters, and like putting the film on himself for audiences. And it ended up getting such a big notoriety because of the performances, the subject matter, and, you know, word of mouth. Things like the Richard Dreyfuss being on the Mike Douglas show saying, this is the most harrowing fucking movie ever. And, like, this is the same year that he's, like, the lead at, like, you know, in Jaws, like, one of the biggest films ever. So it's like... That's a big ad, yeah. Hmm. A decent advertisement. Yeah, and then it was also, you know, uh, it it got started to get some buzz around some festivals and things as well, like playing scenes about the San Sebastian Film Festival, and then... The big one was uh, the New York Film Festival, where um, they initially didn't want to screen the film because it's like, I don't know, this is very intense and I, I, yeah, I don't know if we want to put this on. And Martin Scorsese was such a big fan and cheerleader for this film that he said, if you don't put this film in your festival, I will pull my movie from your festival and you're not allowed to screen it. And he had uh, Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, Mm. which went on to win, like, you know, the Best Actress Academy Award that year and things, coincidentally beating out Jenna Rollins. But, um, yeah, he (laughs) he was such a big cheerleader that he was like, no, you guys are insane, and if you don't put this film in your festival, you ain't getting mine. And because of that, then the film went on to win, I think, Best Director and Best Film at that festival. And, yeah, just kind of steamrolled from there, like getting all this notoriety and, yeah, earning $12 million box office on this little indie self-made thing. He's a, he's a sweetheart. Oh, my God, yeah. yeah. He, he's a real cheerleader for certain people. And it's like, you know, if he finds independent filmmakers that he's like, I like your style. I'm going to help you out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I always like listening to him to watch, watching film. He speaks very quickly, though. Yeah, he, he's uh, peppy. Yeah. <laughs> He's, he's, he's very excited. He's a peppy little Italian guy who who loves cinema, and it's very heartwarming. That's cool. That's nice. <laughs> hmm. But um, I mean, honestly, the the main thing to talk about with a woman under the influence is the performances, in particular Jenna Rollins. Like it it is a performance that you watch it and you're like, this is one of the greatest performances I've ever seen on film. Yeah. Like. Yeah. And it's such a, like, understated, yet simple, yet so intense. Like, it's got, there's so much going on with it. Like, the immediate one that it reminds me of that, like, again, doesn't get as much praise as it should. Like, it's like Ellen Burstyn in um, The Mother in Requiem for a Dream. Yeah, like, yeah. how the work she's doing in that role is insane. And, yeah, Jenna Rollins gives everything to this performance well she carries through on the alcoholism and then that leads into the breakdown yeah and there are there were sequences where she was she's having she was going insane to the point of if you don't handle the situation correctly you're going to come off comical like think um the moose is in the house situation oh yeah we're talking john John travolta the fanatic Uh, yeah and he's trying to do he's trying to do um he's trying to do some kind of well we're supposed to be autistic. 
I don't know. Well, you don't know. <laughs> yeah. And it doesn't work and it's t- it, it ends up being funny and you lose engagement. But yeah. There's a risk there, but Jenna Rollins, like you just enthralled the whole fucking time. I mean, it, it, and it, it starts early with the film as well. Like, it, like at the beginning when Nick can't come home for date night and he has to work overnight and things and she goes out to the bar and you're like, oh, she's just kind of very impulsive and kind of a loose unit kind of woman. And that like not meaning loose as in slutty or anything. I'm meaning like just like untethered to some degree. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's, you're like, okay, yeah, I think I got an idea of who this woman is. She's just kind of odd and you know, swaying in the breeze. And then the next morning you're like, oh, this is scary actually. Like she... When she wakes up and there's the guy kind of pottering around. And it's like, Nick, stop pretending that you're not this. And it's like, oh, okay. This is not what I was expecting. And this is a different type of situation. <laughs> and then it's it's like those little moments, like her when she's going to pick up the kids from the bus and just asking people on the street for the time and people think she's a legit just crazy person and ignore her and that amplifies her and like builds her up more to act more like in line with what their judgments of her are and it's like oh my god (laughs) it's like these wonderful little things that happen in the film that it's yeah you're just like wow you're very subtly making such a wonderful comment on like you know gender politics and stuff as well like this is you're feeling a role yeah yeah so I mean is that common doing what's on, expected of yeah, you and as a as a wife as a mother yeah but then also as a um a mentally ill person yeah yeah and it's so wonderful like the the things that it's examining in without blatantly doing so i guess it's it's so subtle and wonderful yeah i mean and you know, the, i really enjoy say like the dinner sequence towards the end um where she's come back from her stay mm-hmm. uh, abroad and everyone is trying to be supportive but she's just so out of it and there's just such a high degree of anxiety felt th- throughout the whole room with everybody everyone is walking on eggshells because it's that thing of like she's just come back from a six month stay in a psych ward and you're just like we all know this but no one wants to talk about it or address it, it they're treating it like an elephant in the room and it's like yeah, which just builds to this uncomfortable kind of crescendo, and it's like, oof. Well, uh, yeah, and, and Cassavetes has got the camera situated on her face, and you can hear the discussion. Everyone's trying to be as normal as possible and, yeah. and you know, skirt around the elephant in the room, as you say. Mm. And those shots of just her, you're just waiting for her to say something that's just going to fuck everything up. Yeah. And, yeah, I mean, uh, emotionally, I was just like, kind of getting quite sick you get in knots like yeah, just yeah. like oh god oh god because it the whole way through the film it is like i was saying it's that thing of she's building to these crescendos and her character is doing stuff because she, it's like well you're all expecting me to do this i'm expected to do xyz so you're like oh god she's she's something's gonna happen because she's now in a position where she thinks everyone is expecting her to do this so I guess that's what I've gotta do and it's like oh god no <laughs> she's just constantly asking the question am I doing I'm doing okay right and yeah you know, and she's just trying to fill whatever role she thinks she needs to fill. yeah she's like okay what what box am I being put in that I need to do that to be a quote-unquote good normal person and it's so and and the best thing is like it it's so harrowing and upsetting to watch, but then also Peter Falk, knowing like his character Nick, you can see in his face like he he's imposing this, but also hates himself for doing it. Like he is so there's just something about like the way he, that dinner scene as well. Like towards the end, it's like he he is so torn by the situation. He's providing. Peter Falk is providing with Nick a really good supporting role almost. Yeah. You know, that uh, he's, he, he, he doesn't really understand what's happening. No. He's doing his best and he's so combative against everybody off trying to protect. I mean, at, at, towards the end when he's, when she asks if he uh, loves him and he doesn't really answer, I think, I think it's just such a, like you're just looking at his face and you just read, trying to read what he's going through and, He's not sure whether he loves her. He's not sure whether he can support her. He's not sure whether he should protect her. There's just so many things swimming around in, in his head and her head and your own head as you're watching it. That, yeah. 
but you can't help but feel sick. I'm not surprised that Richard Dreyfuss fucking threw up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and even at the end when when um, Nick is trying to deal with her having cut herself, and there's just the kids floating around he's it's just so hopeless him trying to get them upstairs and just oh like, yeah like, there's like a five doing? minute sequence of him like taking the kids up to their bedroom and the kids like running out and going downstairs and him picking them back up upstairs again like it is hectic <laughs> yeah, i mean and you can only yeah it's kind of lightning in a bottle i think because the script is fantastic but then all of the actors doing what they do given the script they elevate it so much mm-hmm. um that that yeah like it's one of the as you say, it's one of the best performances uh, I've ever seen. Yeah, it, it, it's it's crazy that it's not talked about more often. I think this is a sleeper. Like I, mm. his films are a sleeper. Yeah, the, the, it's surprising yeah. me so much <laughs> that like they're not talked about in like the wider spectrum of like classic American cinema. Yeah. yeah, like and I mean I'll bring it up when we get to the trivia and things. It's like this is the third one of his films in a row that is in the National Film Registry. Like you know it is. They are amazing classics. Like, people acknowledge that, but they're not talked about in the wide kind of conversation of film, and they fucking should be. <laughs> well, I, I did hear that uh, he's, he's kind of royalty if you go to film school. Yes, you yes. Know, and all the students are just like, oh my goodness, this is fucking amazing. Yeah, and... But then outside, if you go outside, people really studying film... Nobody knows about him. Yeah, like, and I think I meant brought up last week that, you know, there's the award named after him at the Independent Spirit Awards and stuff. Like, you know, he is acknowledged, but yeah, th- like this one in particular, A Woman Under the Influence, like I understand like Faces and Shadows with like the birthplace of independent film, but A Woman Under the Influence in terms of how raw and emotional and incredible those performances are and the way he has shot it. It is like taking that uh, verite style from Shadows and just amplifying it, and it. Well, I would it, say at times he's amplifying it, but then I think it feels tighter because he doesn't always use that style. Yes, no, he he knows when to use it properly, and it it really reminds me of how it looks like a Robert Altman film, mm-hmm. like that really long just. A camera's on the other side of the room and I'm going to zoom in if I need and I'm going to follow you and just like, yeah, mm-hmm. not in, like, especially towards, like, post that dinner scene where it's just hectic. It's the, it's almost like his camera placement is almost like he, the camera itself is uncomfortable and doesn't want to be yeah. <laughs> close and in this action here. So it's just disjointed and far away and just like, yeah. oh God, should we even be seeing this? This is so personal and yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't know whether it was improvised in the same you know how Faces was, you know, improvised mm. with the film with with Cassavetes holding the camera. What am I going to do? I don't know. I'll just fucking improvise as we're. As yeah, I'll, I'll just I'll just film it as I film it. Yeah. Um, but it, it's. I mean, he's running on instinct, it seems, and it just turns out to be, you know, so fucking amazing in just in every respect. Gold, gold everywhere. <laughs> this is the one where if. If someone was like, what Cassavetes film should I watch? Uh, this is the one I would say. Oh, it, it, it's hard to choose, but I was going to bring this up at the very end on the kind of closing. All right, well, yeah, we'll, we'll kind of put a pin in that then, I guess. Like, oh, okay. I've kind of shown my deck, but... <laughs> my cards, but yeah. <laughs> yeah we'll, we'll That's not to say it's not my favourite. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, a little teaser there for what's coming up. But, okay. um, is there anything else major? Like, again, we're kind of going to breeze through these as quick as possible. Like, no, no, no. no. I, I think we've, you know... But, yeah, we don't want to have it an hour and a half long pot podcast I mm. suppose but if that if that happens then it happens yeah is there anything major for woman under the influence that you don't think we've touched well, on there was one thing I mean was we're talking about how technically it's really amazing but there was one there was one cut that I was that I hated mm. and it's a sequence where Nick goes to work um, and he's you know having a few blues with his co-workers it's like right after the like the issues of Mabel and he's yeah. just like yeah, yeah, it's the whole like you know what I'll talk about my business. Yeah, <laughs> like, that's right. Yeah. And he has a blue with, with one of uh, one of the workers, and there was this weird cut where he leaves the frame, and then all of a sudden the guy's falling down a hill. Yeah. At, there's another sequence in Killing of a Chinese Bookie where you don't really know what was happening with the when the car breaks down. Yes. So there is a couple of things where I was like that edit fucking sucked. Yeah. I, I, I didn't to... know what happened. Was he was the guy pushed down the hill? Did he fall down the hill? I just think he yeah, he just fell and because he like, you know, had 
just being yelled at and called racial slurs by Peter Falk and stuff. And, you know, so that's, like, he's a bit in his head and, you know, not on the, focusing on the job and falls. And that's why Falk, like, runs down the hill after him, like, feeling guilty. And then, okay. and then there's, They obviously like, didn't have a shot that they needed and they tried to... Try and blame the two. Yeah, yeah. Again, like, shot for no money. <laughs> like, low budget, I guess, doing what you can. Yeah. The Rollins did her own hair as well, and yep. makeup. Yep. A- and her her own mother, uh, Lady Lady Rollins, is playing her mother again here. <laughs> like yeah, well actually, there's a lot of Cassavetes uh, as well. All the kids and stuff yeah. are in there. Yep, yep. <laughs> so it's really a family affair, mm. and, and again, like everyone just wants to be a part of it. So yeah. That's great. Well, I think we should move on to uh, Killing of a Chinese Bookie. Well, I'll quickly go through some trivia for oh. Woman Under the Influence. Of course. Uh, so the film was nominated for two Academy Awards, Best Actress for Jenna Rollins and Best Director for Cassavetes. Uh, it was the only time he ever earned a director nomination. Um, it was also nominated for four Golden Globes, Best Screenplay and Best Director for Cassavetes, Best Picture Drama, and Rollins won Best Actress in a Drama. Uh, the National Board of Review, of Review listed it as one of the top 10 films of the year and gave Rollins the Best Actress Award. The WGA nominated uh, Cassavetes for Best Screenplay, written directly for the screen, and it was inducted into the National Film Registry in 1990. So, hmm. um, I've talked about the play aspect, we've talked about... Uh, that's really about it. We've kind of hit everything already in our discussion, except for the fact that Roger Ebert has included it on his list of great films. He gave it a four out of four, and he just loved it. I'd imagine that there'd be many Cassavetes on his uh, list of great films. Mm. He said it is a terribly complicated, involving, fascinating, and a revelation. So, yes. Yes? Agree. Agree on all fronts. (laughs) I'll just quickly talk about the uh, special features on the DVD uh, before we move on. Um, So it's available as a one-disc DVD or one-disc Blu-ray in the box set. It's also up on... I think it's up on the Criterion channel. Um, it comes with an audio commentary by lifelong Cassavetes collaborators Mike Ferris, camera operator, and Bo Harwood, uh, sound recordist and composer. Uh, new video conversation between Jenna Rollins and Peter Falk. Audio interview with Cassavetes by film historians Michael Cement and Michael Wilson, conducted in 1975. Trailer and gallery of stills and behind-the-scenes production photos and all of that stuff, so... So, do we move on to Killing of a Chinese Bookie from 1976, uh, two years later? Yes. So, John Cassavetes engages film noir in his own inimitable style with Killing of a Chinese Bookie. Ben Gazzara brilliantly portrays gentleman club owner Cosmo Vitelli, a woman, uh, <laughs> a man dedicated to pretenses of composure and self-possession. When he runs afoul of a small-time gangster, Cosmo is forced to commit a horrible crime in a last-ditch effort to save his beloved club and his way of life. Yes. Yeah, this... Uh, I mean, there's two versions. Yes. I, I watched the uh, more recent 1978 version. Yes, there's the original version from 1976, which runs 135 minutes, and then the re-released version from 1978 that is 108 minutes. Yeah. So. so I think we should talk about why there's two versions. Yes. Because I think in the previous part one conversation, we said that Cassavetes would often re-edit films, but then he would destroy yes. the previous edits. Hmm. But here we have two versions on this disc. Yes, because, like, uh, yeah, I mean, it was out and, like, you know, it played festivals and been kind of widely seen as this original version. And I think Cassavetes, um, I think one of the forces behind it as well was Ben Gazzara himself, like, apparently really did not like the original version. He thought it was too long and, like... Um, it sounds weird to say, but, like, takes its time in places where it shouldn't, which is kind of but that's an oxymoron for Cassavetes. Yeah. I mean, that's the point of his films, almost. So, like, yeah. they just kind of take their time. But I guess, I mean, if you take it to a certain level, you would disengage so much that you... that even a Cassavetes fan would be like, you know what, it's not working. Um, so, so I guess, like, you can entertain that idea a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. But um, what's interesting about it, though, is um, it's not just the 108-minute the version from 78. It's not just a simple cut-down version of the 1935 version. He's actually uh, changed the order of scenes and done a complete like mix-around and shifted things everywhere. Um, the bulk of the stuff that was removed was um, the nightclub routines. Okay. Like, there, there's chunks in the 76 version where it's like, we're just going to watch the acts at the nightclub for like 10-15 minutes which is kind of beautiful yeah uh, it really is because it gives you an insight into 
Cosmo and the type of club and like what he wrote and produced them yeah and it is and it's so interesting it's very almost they're almost like vaudeville kind of old they're horrible to watch oh yeah but that's the but that's that's the interesting part that's what I mean yeah they're fucking disgusting yeah and it's like he thinks it's like classy and being like it's not just a strip club we're putting on like a performance in this act but it's so bad and he thinks they are yeah which is which is which is lovely in a way and it's very literary things saying like Paris and stuff like oh yeah well I watched the uh, the 1978 version the the reduced version Mm -hmm. because the reason why I didn't watch the 1976 one was because I thought that Cassavetes he's he's not gonna okay so the first one gets released and it's a fucking flop critically it's a flop commercially obviously yeah um but he's not the kind of guy that's going to be like you know what i'm going to re-edit it and put it out again to recoup losses no he's not going to do that it's so he must have had a decision where he's like i'm going to re-edit this because i feel like and i have a, a vision that i can make i can make this vision more succinct yeah so i was like well i'll do the later one then mm, fair enough yeah um and now, now that I mean, you watched the first, the, the longer. Episode. Yeah, I, I watched the seventy-six longer version. Yeah. And now I want to go back and watch all the horrible stage it's, performances. It is one where, like, I, I actually don't think I've ever watched the uh, seventy-eight version. I've only ever watched the two and a half hour long, you know, or uh, two and a quarter hour long version. That's kind of always been the one I'd seen. So I was just like, oh, I'll just rewatch that one again. That's fine. Um, but yeah, it, it is. It is a very different. Film for Cassavetes where it's plot heavy. I mean, it's funny yeah. to say, but it's it's got a plot. It's got a definite plot. And like again, it it's very clearly a Cassavetes film where you like you know it is that methodic, taking its time kind of you know character study examination. But more than anything else he's done, it is plot. Like there, like you said, there is an A, there's a B, there's a C. There is a narrative drive throughout the film that isn't imposed by or. Uh, pushed along by character it's pushed along by plot so people make a decision and someone reacts to that yeah and it's not based off of emotion or a character development thing it is a you know people are forced to act in so exactly um yeah so would you let's talk about the plot then um because i think it's important to talk about uh whether this is a a gangster film yes the, the plot is a gangster plot right yeah so clearly you know He's got to kill a, a Chinese bookie to make good on uh, some debt. Yes. Uh, and he gets involved with the mafia. So it's a gangster film uh, in the sense that the plot is, you know, there's gangsters in it. Yeah. Um, what do you think about, would you put it in as a gangster, in the gangster genre? No. Okay. Um, I, I would definitely classify it as like a crime film, but I don't consider this one a gangster film because... At the end of the day, it's not telling... The emphasis isn't on a story about gangsters. It's on a story of a man who just happens to get involved with some gangsters. It's not... Like, Goodfellas and The Godfather, it is like, we are showing you the life of gangsters, and that's what we're talking about here. Well, I, I kind of want to argue that, mm-hmm. because uh, Scorsese's films, Tarantino's films, Sergio Leone's films, uh, Coppola's films, they're... They're Hollywood in the sense of we're going to tell a story and a lot of this is serious themes that we're going to discuss, but Mm -hmm. it's also here to entertain you as well. Yes. And so it's a heightened, different version of reality because it's a Hollywood film. Yeah. Uh, With this one, uh, Cassavetes is not trying to necessarily entertain you. Mm. And as we said before, you know, he he tends to power wash all the Hollywood out of his films. Yeah. Um... It, I definitely agree with that, but um, I think what emphasizes me not classifying it as a gangster film necessarily I is... I agree with you, by the way. Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, is that Cassavetes himself fucking hated gangsters and hated gangster movies and never wanted to make one, and mm-hmm. so he didn't approach this as a gangster film, mm-hmm. and he approached it as a, an allegory for uh, outside forces like imposing you and trying to dissuade you from doing your achieving your dreams mm. that's what yeah. he viewed the film yeah. as which is so beautiful yes that's right uh, I mean because originally he, he he was driving uh, he's living in LA I think at the time of working in LA and he was, yeah. he was going down these um, strips and he thought well I'm going to go into one of these strip clubs and just have a look 
and he started talking to one of the owners. He's like, you know what, this is kind of interesting. This guy's not like typically what you see on in the cinemas. Mm. Um, he's got a real story, and he thinks he's doing good work, and he's putting out this, what he would call art. Yeah. And he's excited about it, and he's just a, a person running a business that he cares about. Uh, and so you write this kind of film. And I thought what was really fascinating was I was watching a um, special feature, and Ben Gazzara was talking about his experience with making the film. And he was saying that uh, they were doing a bunch of shoots, and he realized like I don't fucking get this. What the, this is this is this is strange. It's not working. I don't understand I why do, the story's I, been I told. I cannot relate to this character. I don't understand him. What am I doing? Yeah, and he, and he tells the story of he was in the doing a shoot. And he was in the car. He's dropping off his girls, and it's just the you know the scene is Bengazar is taking the girl out of the car, and. Castavetti pulls out the camera and he starts and he's crying mm-hmm. and Ben's like why are you crying man and he starts to explain that this is this is Cosmo's Cosmo is him in yeah. a sense uh, the whole idea of Cosmo is um, a man that cares deeply about what he considers to be art mm-hmm. and it's niche and the people it's not that, mainstream and the people that he surrounds himself that are helping him create and facilitate his art yeah like yeah and he's saying that um, effectively, the mafia who are forcing him to um, risk all of that by killing a man is exactly how he feels about the studios making forcing him to make shit yeah. that he doesn't care about. So, so once you know that, I, I finished the film and I was like, I don't get it. Mm. I don't get it. And I, and I was reading up a bunch of shit and I still didn't get it. And it wasn't until I read, I watched that interview with Ben Gazzara and he told me that. Yeah, I was like, I get this. It just I love click. it. Yeah, I love this. Yeah, um, it, w- when because you... it's so beautiful that a man that this story isn't a gangster film. It's about a man following his dreams. Yeah, and and doing whatever so upset, he can. Yeah, and, to... and celebrating niche art just for, for self expression. <laughs> yeah, but it is housed in strip clubs and you know, un, you know, underground gambling and the mafia and stuff. It's so interesting. <laughs> it's so it's it's odd because tonally uh, and visually, it's such a gritty rough movie yeah it, but it once is, you know that it's yeah. it's becomes transforms into something that's just absolutely beautiful yeah apparently um it was like the basis for the story the idea of like a strip club owner who you know has is forced into you know killing a chinese bookie for the mafia to get out of his gambling debt that was actually a story um he came up with with scorsese the two of them kind of kicked it around and were workshopping it together for quite a while and then it i it, Obviously, all these thematic elements and the idea of the dreams and the metaphors and stuff came in, and Scorsese's just like, "You got this, dude. Go. Like, uh-huh. this is, this is you." And that's what I, I, why I love this film so much is because it seems like Cassavetti's taking something that would be initially a, you could easily see this as a '70s Scorsese film. Like, it has that tonal kind of similarities to something like Taxi Driver and things, but. It is so uniquely done in a Cassavetti's way that makes it so different and odd and you like just great. I fucking love this movie a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it's quite incredible. Um, and I think this as well, is the roller coaster that you go on. Yeah. When, when I was watching these films, it's like you, you're, you're confused and you're challenged to such a degree that you don't know what to do. And then if you really put in the time to think about it, these films open up and become something just absolutely Hmm. magnificent. And it's the thing of like at the beginning of the film, like, and you, you know, you read the synopsis and stuff and know the plot and you're like, this sounds so, um, like it's going to be a fun, like thrill ride kind of movie. But then you have the scene where it's him taking all the, like, you know, his favorite girls out for a date night. And then it cuts to the reality of what the date night is, and it's like they're sitting in the corner while he loses $23,000 on, on, like, a card game, and you're like, oh, this is sad as hell. <laughs> like, this is not... It's a really kind of heartbreaking and sad scene. They don't... But they don't mind. I mean, the... the his um, favourite girl, like, the black lady, she... Mm. She doesn't mind. Mm, Haji oh, is her name, by the way. She's from okay. Faster Pussycat Kill Kill, the uh, oh, Ross Meyer movie. Yeah. Oh, no shit. Um... <laughs> But as you say, like they're all there to support him because they care about what he's doing too. Yeah, and they believe even, in what they're doing, and yeah. yeah, even though you know most people wouldn't. Mm. So you can see why this would be so important. Yeah. to John to get to complete. Um, and I just love as well Ben Gazzara's performance. I think is so 
like so lovely. <laughs> it makes you actually give a shit about Cosmo because I think if he was handled the wrong way, he could be a very unlikable character. But there's something about him that is. It, it's not a naivety, but it, it it's close to it where he just is. He's so perfectly portrays a man who is doing what he wants to do and will keep doing that at all costs. And yeah, you get enough of that that you don't that you can empathize with him yeah. rather, rather than sympathize with him. And like prior to watching this a couple of years ago, like my only real um, exposure to Ben Gazzara, like in a big way, is the as the like mustache twirling villain in Roadhouse, the Patrick Swayze movie, <laughs> like where he's so over the top and insane, and then seeing him in something like this where you're just like, oh. Yeah, you're great. <laughs> well, I only knew him from uh, Big Lebowski. Oh God, yeah, he's Jackie Treehorn. Yeah, yes, of course. So, I mean, that's that's uh, that's how I was familiar with him. Mm. But that's such a minor role that I was like, I yeah. don't know, I don't know your acting chops. Yeah, that's and it's similar as well. Like with the the Todd Salon film Happiness, he has like a small role in that. But it's like, in terms of actually having a meaty role, it's like no, he's like the crazy guy in Roadhouse who's just like driving his car, swerving all over the road because he's rich and he can. Yeah. <laughs> like, so silly. That's great. And, and, and yeah, at the time, as you said, he, he hated that certainly the original cut. Mm. But I think there's another special feature where he was saying that actually this is his most fond uh, experience with John Cassavetes. Yeah. You call it his favourite film that he ever did. Yeah, because they did like four or five together, I want to say. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's I, I love the look of this film as well it, it's that real 70s like where everything looks like it's shot like it, it's like all the crew were smoking cigarettes and then it's like alright we're rolling and they, everyone puts it out and there's just this smoke haze yeah. in every room and it's just got that yeah. that classic look to it it does feel like it's we were just talking about before how uh, influence of a what was it called Oh, well, Woman, Woman Under Influence is, is a tighter looking film mm. and this one felt like a step back but of yes. course it kind of it's, it suits uh, the plot and, the, and the, the location and the theme so well exactly um, so yeah so you know I, can, I can't tell you how much of a wild ride this has been mm-hmm. I finished watching Chinese Bookie I actually wanted to to buy a poster because I yes. was like I'm so in love with with John Cassavetes now <laughs> um and, and I wanted a reminder of, a, of just, like, follow your dreams and, mm. and risk it all. Like, he's so courageous to mortgage his house again and again just to get his fucking vision out there. I was like, I want something on my wall that I can just look at and just be reminded of that. Um, but, yeah, like, some of the original posters, which he put out himself. He'd walk around mm-hmm. the cities and put them in bars and cinemas himself. Mm-hmm. They're worth fucking thousands of dollars. Yes. So... I can't really afford that, but <laughs> yeah. But I would like to have one. Mm. You can buy a reprint, like a non non original. Oh, well, maybe I will. Yeah, the original would be something real special. But you can see why everybody's just like yeah, so in love with this dude. Yes, that they're willing to spend thousands of dollars on an original poster. Oh yeah, and they're gorgeously designed posters as well. The the killing of a Chinese bookie one, where it's like the the Chinese the calligraphy. Like calligraphy with the face. Yeah, that's really pretty. Yeah. Yeah. Um, sorry, I'm just looking at my laptop because I've got them up on my screen and I'm like, yeah, that, that's nice. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, do you want to hear a little bit of trivia or have we, is there anything else? I think we've covered off on, um, on everything. I, I do, f- like, I mean, you could spend, uh, it, it's kind of, we, we could spend, you could, a, spend a, you could spend a whole episode on each fucking movie. Yeah, um, but but I think if we did that, like, I like that we're kind of breezing through and we're talking about Cassavetes as a whole as opposed to the individual films because, I mean, it, it, there's a reason Criterion put out this massive box set of, like, let's just look and examine Cassavetes. And, it's intentional. Yeah. And, and I think with films like, you know, Woman Under the Influence, Killing of a Chinese Bookie, if we were to spend an entire episode on it, it would end up being one of those ones where after a while we would be like, oh, and this scene was cool. And this, like, it would... I like that we're just kind of doing the broad strokes kind of look at, you know. When we, when we finish up, uh, do the closing thoughts, we can, we can go... We can talk at length a little bit about um, why it's good to go through the box set mm. and just mush them all together. Yes, yes. Um, but let's move on. Oh, do you want to do some tri- the trivia? Yeah, yeah. Um, opening night. So in case, I think I'd mentioned in the episode the amount of money that Cosmo owes uh, for the gambling is $23,000, which in 1976 was a lot of money. Um, 
We've talked <laughs> Thanks, about Chris. Yeah. yeah. We've talked about uh, Scorsese, the alternate versions. Um, ooh, what's interesting actually is uh, there is no cinematographer credit on the film to give it like uh, officially credited cinematographer to help add that kind of again that documentary ver- verite kind of feel to it where it's like I don't know was this real was it like you know the cameraman was just kind of there floating but uh, okay Al Rubin who's the producer on a lot of his films and mm. sometimes cinematographer yeah he started as a cinematographer and then became the producer and things yeah okay so they just thought you know if we don't have a cinematographer it's going to look extra oh, if there's yeah. no credit for it it adds to that like adds to that verite kind of style of okay. like you know this was almost like semi-documentary kind of yeah. But again, the film isn't full on verite. It is like very similar to Woman Under the Influence, where he picks and chooses the scenes where he's going to go cinematic with it, like the uh, versus just letting the camera sit back and observe and things. So, mm. um, the other uh, this is, I got some weird trivial trivia for this one. Uh, David Bowie was often present on the set uh, during the filming of the shots, uh, and you can, you can be seen in the background, kind of constantly at uh, Cosmo Strip Club in the background. Or you just want to rock up on set and hang out? Or? Yeah, he was just hanging out. Yeah, cool. So David Bowie's an extra in this movie. <laughs> Damn. Yeah. I wonder who... Yeah, I wonder... John Cassavetes feels like a kind of guy that a lot of artists... Would gravitate towards. Would gra- yeah, just want to meet. Yeah. yeah. And be like, I like you. <laughs> I like what you're doing. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Um, I'll just quickly go through the Criterion edition itself. Um, actually, I'll... Uh, so it's a two-disc DVD or one-disc Blu-ray, also available up on the Criterion channel. Uh, but the physical release comes with both the 135-minute and the 108-minute cuts. Uh, it also comes with a new video interview with Ben Gazzara and producer Al Rubin, uh, audio interview with Cassavetes by film historian Michael Cement and Michael Wilson, conducted after the film's release, as well as uh, stills and poster gallery and trailer and all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. I went through every single special feature on all of these. Wow. Because... It's, he's amazing. Yes. Oh, no. I just want to keep learning about it. Also. Yeah. It's all really good stuff to... Mm. Essential, actually, I think, to... To, to give a full Actually watch this stuff. Yeah. yeah. Okay. On, to, uh, on to opening night. Yes. Let's, let's move on to opening night. Where's that one? Here we go. Broadway actress Myrtle Gordon, Jenna Rollins, rehearses for her latest play about a woman unable to admit that she is aging. When she witnesses the accidental death of an adoring young fan, she begins to she begins to confront the personal and professional turmoil she faces in her own life. Featuring a moving performance by Roland, uh, and with me- with some scenes shot on stage with live audience rea- reacting freely to the writing and performances, John Cassavetes opening night explores the drama of an actress who, at great personal cost, makes a part her own. Mm. Mm. So uh, again. Gina Rollins and uh, Ben Gazzara Gina Rollins in particular putting on a fucking amazing performance and this is the uh, first time in the box set we're seeing Cassavetes in front of the camera as well yeah that's right Mm. that's right Uh, so did you say just then the the extras in uh, in the theatre yes so when they're all just kind of watching it as if it was a play okay and they were filming it and they were reacting naturally so Cassavetes just put an ad out yep and just said hey come and have a free show I suppose pretty much okay um, yeah, amazing. So this one uh, also has a kind of... I like the kind of surrealism that was going on in it when oh, yeah. the, the young girl, uh, Nancy... I think her name was Nancy, right? Yep. Uh, when she gets hit by the car and um, Gina Rollins is thinking, well, it's kind of the, the beginnings of her unraveling. Hmm. I, I suppose... I, was kind of, I wanted to get your read on it, whether it's she's having visions of this uh, dead girl that doesn't... Ex- that, you know, it's not really there. Um, is it trying to be ambiguous in the sense of, uh, is it, was there ever a girl that got killed? I think, no, there definitely was, um, because it's brought up in conversation and the other people were there and reacted and so with it. And okay. Yeah. But I think it's, it's the, the impact of that because she's, the, it starts with her acting in this play. She's a, you know, a big star and things. And she's now finding herself at a crossroads where she is now playing, a older woman and it's that's obviously a big issue for some actresses like the idea of I'm now moving from one stage of my career into this other one and am I going to be typecast and all that thing and uh, this whole turmoil is brought around age and then 
with the instigating incident being uh, seeing the death of um, it's a fan who loves her because of what she is in that moment uh, as this young star but after she starts doing this play that hasn't opened yet and no one has seen that will no longer exist that why she is adored and then you have the opening scene be someone who loves her as this one type of thing being literally killed and her having to deal with the emotional impact of like oh shit what I'm going through is literally personified there as that and being haunted by those visions it is an interesting film discussing like age <laughs> I guess yeah uh, and also I was watching the special features obviously for this too and and Jenna Rollins has, got, has done nothing to her face yeah okay it's all natural and she's aged very well um, but a lot of people a lot of women and men in Hollywood, they get to that stage where they're combating their their age. They're doing whatever they can to to stay relevant. Yeah, and, and that's that is not. We can't all be Paul Rudd and <laughs> never age. Yeah, or um, Elijah Wood. <laughs> yeah, they're vampires. I swear. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, it's a very real problem because uh, actors and actresses, they their whole livelihood it's not only their livelihood it's their image yeah. of themselves that's affected by what everybody thinks of them yeah and it's very seldom that you actually get certain actors or that act transition gracefully or don't seem to give a fuck like like Jenna Rollins is a prime example someone like Meryl Streep as well who just seemed to like I don't give a fuck if it's a good role it's a good role yeah. like uh, Gene Hackman similar like you know people who actually give a shit about acting as opposed to the image and the persona that they're cultivating I guess <laughs> I, I think the difference is desire for fame yes yeah someone's interested in work and expressing themselves artistically and someone and, and you know they're going to do that yes they're going to take their risks and they're going to have, have fun and they're going to fail and they're going to succeed yeah and it doesn't matter what if they're playing a grandmother if they're playing a 20 year old it doesn't matter like, and then you have the other people that are just like this is my job and I need to stay relevant yeah and the only way to do that is to stay in this niche, it's to stay in this pocket of time that I'm in right now when I am famous. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. I, I look a certain way. And so, yeah. There, Let's try and a... protract that for as long as possible. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's an old film. This is nearly 50 years old. Yeah. And, um, uh, and, and it's still, I mean, I think it's always going to be relevant in that regard. Yeah. Um, and I think, like, out of all of the Cassavetes films I've seen, um, which is honestly, let's say, like, this box set and maybe one more. <laughs> So not many, but it's um it's it's the best looking. It is the most kind of assured cinematic film that he's made. I think. Well, yeah, and I, I think also because you, you're, I mean, a lot of people are, you're watching a stage performance. Hmm. Just plop the camera down, and I mean, it's easy to capture that. Oh, but even outside of that, like actual scenes of like uh, of having Myrtle going through her breakdown and stuff is so interestingly shot. It really, really reminded me of a David Lynch film to some degree. Um, and I certainly did, the surrealistic, yes, yeah, all, all of that those, stuff. Those visions that are of the of Nancy. Oh, and it gets borderline kind of terrifying at some moments where there's like the scene where she opens the door and Nancy's there and like grabs at her and stuff. Like it's. Yeah, shocking and kind of it. It's very Mulholland Drive esque, yeah. where you're just like, "God damn, dude!" <laughs> and when she's attacking Nancy, mm. uh, people are just like, "What the fuck's going on?" Yeah, and there's no one actually there, and she's just smashing a room by herself. Like, yeah, I, I was surprised. Yeah, I'm not. I mean, I'm certainly not expecting that kind of stuff mm. uh, at this point from John Cassavetes' film. Yeah, but I welcome it. Yes, very much so. Um, but um, I think I think this this the the really amazing thing is watching Gina Rollins perform while drunk at the end. Yes. Um, I, I was so blown away by her ability to. I mean, apparently she was drinking a little bit anyway on set, just to kind of really, really capture it. But yeah, and I, I believe Cassavetes himself was a uh, functioning alcoholic, so it oh. was always. Well, I mean, he died from cirrhosis, uh, cirrhosis of the liver, so oh. <laughs> like, yeah. So I think that there was alcohol was kind of there. <laughs> okay. Well, shit. I didn't, I didn't know how he died, actually. Mm. Oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, I, I just... It's on par. Like, certainly those the drunk scenes. I mean, that's the kind of... The whole film... That's the climax of the film. Yeah. Everything's leading up to that... Those sequences. And it is in a very similar Cassavetti style where it is, like, slow... Slowly building up through character and then just we're going to plonk you down and have like a 20 minute scene that just like builds and builds and builds and kind of, yeah, takes you out. But also, um, 
you know, kind of leading up to that point where she's deciding, well, hey, I'm going to flop on the ground here. I'm going to throw this here. I'm going to fuck up this rehearsal here. Um, it wasn't quite clear whether she was going off script. Yeah. You know, because like you don't know the script. Yeah, we, we hadn't been privy to the scenes as they were meant to be done before. Yeah. So. so so a lot of times I was watching uh, the performance and I was thinking, well, at, at what stage are the is she going off, off script and causing problems? I mean, and then after the fact, you would have a scene where everyone's like, the fuck you doing, man? Like, hmm. um, But it, that kind of played well with it all because, it, I mean, it, the, the, all these films are like that where you, you're not quite sure, you can't put a pin down on on anyone's motivations particularly you need you can't they're hard to dissect while you're in the middle of them you need to have gone mm-hmm. through the entire journey and come out the other end to be yes. like okay I get what's happening now yeah yeah. it's kind of funny because it begs a rewatch but then um, at the same time I can't I'm, I'm going to struggle to ever rewatch these yeah uh, so it's just one of those there are all these films that you, you as you say you, you, you try and make sense during you're watching them, then you you make your decision, which continues to evolve afterwards. Yeah. As you just think and think and ponder and whatever. Yeah, and I think that's like the reason for that is because, like with the exception of Killing of a Chinese Book, you really they they are not strong on the narrative, and it is and so that you don't necessarily have something to latch onto where you're like I understand based on my understanding of stories and structures and how they exist, like, we're going... This is where we're going with this story mm. and, and or with this film. Um, instead, you just are kind of lost in the woods and you're like, okay, well, let's let's just see what happens, I guess. I have no fucking idea what we're talking about or what we're exploring. It's, it's great. It's a good format because it makes you... You have to insert yourself into it. Yeah. Uh, in order to process it. It forces you to connect with the characters at, 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 on at least a base level. Like, you need to, like, you need to latch on on some degree. Otherwise, you're just going to be... Like, you, you got nothing then. So, yeah. he, he's forcing you to engage with, with his characters, whether you like it or not. It's, it's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, so it's not going to be for everybody. No, God, no. As a result. No. But I think if you can have that understanding you can just click like they click so wonderfully i think and it, it's that thing of i think if you were to watch like one or two as standalones you're like oh yeah but I, because like going through this whole box set it's like it, it is a wonderful journey and it makes you connect and understand who he is what he's doing how he and his actors work to tell a story what they're talking about what they're trying to express it's great well yeah i i uh, there's a special feature where there's an interview with El Rubin, who we were just mentioning um, prior, that he's the, typically the producer. Mm-hmm. Sometimes does the lighting, sometimes um, does cinematography. Um, and he was saying that, uh, I thought this was a really good way of putting it, is, is you, you can only ever be indoctrinated into Cassavetes. You can't just... This is why this box set's so good. Yeah. You, you have to go through all this shit quite quickly because if you, if you were... If I was to watch, say, Faces... And it was a single standalone viewing. And then I, I wouldn't really know what to do with it. And then like 40, 50 films later, we're doing Shadows. Yeah. And you're like, oh, wait, what? Yeah, you wouldn't... Like, it, it just wouldn't work for me. I, yeah. I, I, just, I just wouldn't fully understand it because I wouldn't have had the opportunity to, to jump in enough. Yeah. Um, so I really appreciate that there's the box set that you can go through and go, you know what? In two weeks, I'm going to watch five films. Um and as a result, you get like a really good appreciation for yes. Cassavetes. If you want, if you want to put in the time and effort. Mm. And yeah, now thankfully Criterion have started putting out some of his other films, like uh, Husbands, a movie you made with Ben Gazzara and um, I, I think Peter Falk as well. That's just been released like last month from Criterion, so they're starting to get some of his other stuff out there now, which is awesome. Mm. So yeah, and and I'd be yeah, it's it's funny. I think Scorsese said that he saw. Faces once. Yes. Thought it was one of the best films he ever seen. And he's never going to watch it again. Yeah, it was because uh, he was saying like there were two films. If you want to understand how to make a movie, he's like Citizen Kane, which you can infinitely rewatch and rewatch and rewatch to learn technique and style and like how to place a camera and edit and like you know all the technicality stuff. And then you watch Faces and you're like, oh yeah, cool, I got it. Yeah. So, so with that in mind, 
what would you call the best that we've seen here and what would you call your favorite well before we do that i'll just quickly do some trivia for opening night and okay. or we'll like kind of Put a pin in all of that and then just kind of do the wrap-up, I guess. Uh, so the film was nominated for two Golden Globes, uh, Best Actress in a Drama for Jenna Rollins and Best Supporting Actress for Joan Blondell, who played uh, Sarah, the writer of the play. Uh, it was nominated for the Golden Bear of the 1978 Berlin Film Festival, where Rollins won the Silver Bear for Best Actress, and the film won the Interfilm Award there as well. Um... In a 1978 television interview, Cassavetes said that this was the best film he had anything to do with, which I thought was interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Um, again, like with most of the Cassavetes films, he had problems getting it distributed. Um, but then after Especially he... after Killing a Chinese Bookie. Yeah. Um, which had, had was such a commercial failure. Yeah, so it had a life, you know, within the film culture and then, you know, touring festivals and things and being appreciated. But then um, after he passed away in 1989, uh, the film was acquired by um, a new American, a major American distributor and was actually re-released in 1991 and did like a whole nother kind of resurgence and revival at festivals and was put out there again. And people actually got to see it and appreciate it, which was nice. Okay. Mm. Um, and the actual Criterion edition itself, again, one disc DVD, one disc Blu-ray, uh, comes with new uh, video conversation between Jenna Rollins and Ben Gazzara, new interview with director of photography and producer Al Rubin, audio interview with Cassavetes by film historians Michael Cement and Michael Wilson, conductor after the film's release, trailer and all that jazz. Uh, the interview with Ben Gazzara and Jenna Rollins, um, they're together in the same room, mm-hmm. and it's, it's really beautiful. It's like 20 minutes of them just catching up, frothing over their love for for John and his films and each other. That's beautiful. And it's really, it's lovely. Yeah. Um, but yes, now we'll go back to your question you posited. Uh, what is, did what's, you say, what what's is the best, What's what do you think is the best film of these five yep. and your favorite film of these five? The best film of these five is A Woman Under the Influence. <laughs> um, I think because it is, it, 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 I would say, I liken it to, in the same way that I would technically say Grand Budapest Hotel is Wes Anderson's best film because it's like the culmination of everything okay. he has been doing previously he is now perfected I think that's what Cassavetes has done it is like the most quintessentially that and mm-hmm. I think that's what uh, like with Grand Budapest that is, that is pinnacle Wes Anderson Woman Under the Influence is pinnacle Cassavetes I think it is him doing everything he has built Pre, uh, he's building upon everything he'd done previously uh, in terms of uh, film construction, performance, thematic storytelling. I, I think it is just, yeah, his masterwork. Uh, my favourite's Killing of Chinese Bookie. <laughs> yeah. Because, is that because of the, what it represents? What it represents and because it's so different from the others. Not, not to say that, that I don't like the other ones, but I find it interesting seeing him apply his model to a film that has a strict narrative structure mm-hmm. and again at the core of it what it's saying and what it's representing is so lovely that it, you can't help it and the neons and the smoke filled rooms and the music I just love everything about it mm. I, I agree with that that's my favourite because I, I actually when I was watching it I thought this is this is the one I'm not enjoying uh, I'm enjoying the least okay um because there was the plot and it didn't it wasn't really I didn't really get it as I was watching it but yeah um, but once you realise that it's uh, Cassavetes talking about um, following a dream even though it's a niche and people don't quite get it uh, if it's that important to you you should do it you should do it at all costs to try and help achieve your dreams yeah and, and I think that is um, fuck the forces that are trying to yeah. stop you <laughs> yeah I mean yeah. that that is it's such a beautiful message at that point that I was like fucking you know that's why I want the fucking poster yeah um, and and as far as best I got, I got no idea because I, I don't know if I ever rewatched these um, and the more I think about each one they kind of cha- my idea of them is changing yeah and and I don't know like they're all it, like it's been I've enjoyed watching everything together. Yeah. That it's become... That you don't it's think not you se- can... They're not separate. You know, yeah. like it's... It, the ex- it, you want the John Cassavetes experience. Yeah. You, you, they, all these films work as a giant statement together as opposed to plucking one and being yeah. like, that one or that one. Or- so I was thinking about, you know, well, well, if, if someone was like, you know, I heard, I've heard of this guy, John Cassavetes, where do I start? And I was thinking, well, I get maybe opening night because it's... It, it's... See, technically, I, yeah. technically, kind of normal-ish. 
See, no, but I that's where I go woman under the influence because I like I said, I think it is it, it's kind of almost the trial by fire of like well, that's, that's, yeah. that's my point because do I think that because it was the last one I watched and I'm and I'm more used to him? Yeah. If I had done them in any other order, would would I think differently? So yeah, they're all just these weird little enigmas that that are just kind of fucking remarkable. Yeah, and and the journey we've been on, starting with Faces and ending with Opening Night, seeing the growth and the development of a filmmaker and how he changes and shifts styles and learns and yeah develops has has been so wonderful to watch. And it, he and he expresses himself from moment to moment in his life. Um, so personally mm. um, you know it's, it's no wonder that opening night is about a person aging yeah like at a certain point that's what he's thinking about exactly yeah and it's um yeah it, it, it's a testament to how important it is sometimes to examine a filmmaker's work as a progression in their filmography as opposed to just plucking this film, this film, this film, like actually starting from the beginning and kind of watching in sequence, them learning and growing and developing in the stories they're telling as they get older is, it, it's important, mm. especially for someone like Cassavetes, I think. Mm. Yeah, yeah, no, it's I, good. I didn't realize, I, this is, this is, uh, this is why I like doing this because um, you never hear of a guy and then two weeks later you've like found a new favorite. Yep, and not just that, but we've powered through like seven spine numbers in two weeks so yeah yeah. well I guess that'll probably wrap us up for our massive uh, exploration of John Cassavetes um I mean it goes without saying obviously if you enjoyed what we've talked about like and it sounds interesting seek out his movies some of them are up on YouTube I've noticed as well I know yeah Woman Under the Influence is definitely up on YouTube so you know if you don't have Criterion Channel or you know access to these, like they are, they they're they're out there. You can find them fairly easily. Mm. Give it give it a look if you've never dabbled in Cassavetes. It is well worth it. And you've listened to what would now be more than two hours of us talking about films you've never seen. Yep. <laughs> and we spoiled the fuck out of them for you, but no, that's okay. Yeah, that's okay. I, uh, if you found this interesting, delve into it, man. Go for it. Yeah, because they're not. Yeah, they're not. It doesn't matter. I think if you've if you the plot doesn't fucking matter. No. Just the endings don't matter. It's just like the journey has been such a crazy journey. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, we're gonna uh, we got an interesting one. I, I've been, I've never seen next week's film. Um, it's been on my list for quite a while. We got a Robert Altman film uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, called Secret Honor. We've seen Altman before, right? Yes, Altman is uh, Three Women, was oh, the most yeah. recent one. Yeah, that's right. That and was amazing. Outside of the collection, you've probably seen Gosford Park, Mash. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. The player with Tim Robbins. I mean, that's I in the collection, that. but yeah. I haven't seen that. Oh, anyway, that, that's good because Three Women's, uh, I really, really appreciated. Mm. So, yeah, we've got um, Secret Honor, which I believe is a filmed version of a one man show about Richard Nixon. Okay. Mm. Sounds so, interesting. Yeah, it, it seems very interesting, so I'm looking forward to that. So, uh, tune in next week as we uh, watch Secret Honor. Otherwise, if you have any comments or queries, you can send us an email at thecriterionquest at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter at CriterionQuest. And uh, as I said at the beginning of the episode, we've got our Patreon up. Um, thank you to those that have subscribed. Uh, we love the support. Um, yeah, thank you very much. Um, but otherwise, we'll see you next time. For this week's episode, I'm Chris. And I'm Tom. See you next time.